Hello, you are listening to the Michigan Mausoleum, your premier source for goth and alternative culture, news, and talk in the Great Lakes area. Now, come inside and join your host, Rokus Doran. Greetings and welcome to episode 5 of the Michigan Mausoleum. It's finally starting to feel like fall. In this edition, I reminisce a little bit about Goth Day events gone by and how they relate to the history of cemeteries and how they became beautiful park-like areas. I also speak with a gentleman whose vocation it is to bring that beauty of cemeteries to the public. And then I sit down with my special guest, singer Anastasia Minster. But first, let's find out what we can look forward to as we enter the dark half of the year over these next couple of months. It's news and events. (laughs) News and events. There's a lot coming up for the spooky season to look forward to. If your tastes run towards horror, then on the autumnal eve of Saturday, October 7th, in the shadowy embrace of a resurrected century-old church, the Festival of Darkness returns. Within the hallowed walls, a meticulous selection of short films, a spectacle of darkness and horror crafted by local and distant filmmakers, will grace the screen for approximately 90 haunting minutes. The Festival of Darkness will be hosted at the Narthex, a reanimated historic 1900s church located within the East Canfield neighborhood of Detroit. Seating will include pew benches and individual seats for up to 250 patrons. There will be a cash-only concession stand and staff parking will be available. Half the admission sales will benefit New Path Village, a Detroit-based nonprofit organization creating self-managed communities of cost-effective homes for people in need of housing. If you're a little too squeamish for horror, then you might want to try out the Happy Feet Pet Rescue's Halloween Party, also on October 7th, located in the Rio Town Marketplace in Lansing. Bring your pup for a howling good time featuring dog trick-or-treating at local businesses, cider and baked goods, fall-themed photo shoot, and more. VNV Nation, which is in the midst of a North American tour, will be passing through the Great Lakes area. Following their Montreal performance, the band will be performing at the Dansforth Music Hall in Toronto on October the 2nd, before moving on to Detroit, where they will appear at the Majestic Theatre on October 4th. And on Saturday, October 28th, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., the Toronto Dark Arts Market will take place. The Toronto Dark Arts Market is an artesian market dedicated to all things weird and wonderful. Artists, artisans, musicians, writers, and makers of alternative goodness are all featured in this in-person marketplace. The uh, Toronto Dark Arts Market is still accepting applications for vendors, so if you would like to get your wares in, go to uh, www.torontodarkartsmarket.com. And coming up on October 27th and 28th, 7 to 11 p.m., the Rocky Horror Immersion. Welcome to an extraordinary event unlike any other, the Rocky Horror Show reimagined as an immersive experience within the iconic Motown mansion. Prepare to be transported into a world where time and space lose their meaning and where the boundaries of reality are shattered. This is presented by the Opera Modo and Marche du Nain Rouge. Tickets can be uh, obtained at opera-modo.ticketleap.com slash rockyhorror. 
And please do not forget that tickets are now on sale for Cabernet du Mortel, which will take place on October 27th in Grand Rapids. They're bringing the Hell's Best nightclub to Grand Rapids for Halloween with burlesque, drag, dance, and their kink experience, as well as psychic readings, a typewriter lounge, and a formal wear costume contest with a fantastic prize. So don't miss it. In Grand Rapids, the Wealthy Theater is making good use of the spooky season. Starting on September 23rd, they are doing a run of classic horror movies, including Evil Dead 2, The Frighteners, Friday the 13th 3D, Rocky Horror, and many others. It all comes to a head with a Wolfman Frankenstein Dracula triple feature on Halloween night. I would love to be there for that one. And looking ahead to December, there is a new event on the radar. Lansing's very first Krampusnacht celebration will take place on Saturday, December 9th from 6 to 9 p.m. in the Old Town neighborhood of Lansing. There will be a traditional Krampus parade, folklore stories in the park with local story bo- storyteller Baba Lisa, a Krampus costume contest for all ages, games and crafts for adults and children, a misfit market of vendors, food and drink offerings, and special sales from the Old Town merchants who will be open late night for shopping. And that is some of what will be happening over the next few months in our area. If you know of any events or newsworthy items you think should be shared with the masses, please message the show or post it at the Michigan Mausoleum Facebook page. Coming up next, a new segment where we highlight a goth-oriented small business. I will be talking with cemetery photographer Mike Haynes. Then later on, I sit down with my special guest, musician and singer Anastasia Minster. So stay tuned. And welcome. I am with Mike Haynes of Still Life Photography. Um, Still Life Photography is uh, an art business, a sort of a craft art business, and uh, was one of the vendors we had uh, for Convergence 24. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing today? Doing well. So you, uh, we last saw you in uh, Detroit when we were doing Convergence 24. Uh, Why don't you, for those who aren't aware, why don't you just um, tell the listeners what it is exactly you make and uh, where they can find you? So basically what we do is cemetery photography. Photography is a very difficult uh, business, but cemetery photography is particularly challenging. Uh, We travel the country throughout the United States. We haven't been overseas yet, but we're looking forward to doing that soon. And we take photos of extravagant cemetery family plots, cemetery headstones, graves, basically anything to do with the cemetery or graveyards. We've been doing it for about 11 years. What is it that makes cemetery photography so challenging? Well, when you show up to uh, you know, a location, you never know what type of lighting you're going to have, and you don't really know what type of crowd is going to be there. Sometimes cemeteries are very crowded, so a photo might take you quite a while to get because if it's a popular you know, family plot or a particular location that people see online a lot, you might have a lot of uh, people there. So if you show up and say you've got bad lighting, the only good thing about showing up with bad lighting is then you get to explore the local areas and maybe go out and have a nice bite to eat or find some new weirdo shops that you don't have local to you. And uh, is there a particular, do you gravitate more towards really historic cemeteries or do you visit Uh, them all? We visit them all, and I, I try to pick out the most unique or picturesque uh, locations. And uh, what do you do with the, uh, the photographs? Do you make, um, do, do you just, do you frame them or do you make jewelry? What, is it, what do your products look like? So the products that we have are pretty extravagant, ornate, vintage frames that we make and uh, that we, we will repurpose them. We do have some handmade frames that we also do. I had a whole line called the uh, heirloom collection that was that were hand-built window arches that looked like cathedral windows. 
that featured our cemetery photography in them. And then we, we like to find the big ornate, uh, for lack of a better word, Liberace style mirrors. And then I take the mirrors out and uh, have glass cut and blow our images up and put our images in those. So they are mostly framed. You don't do smaller pieces? Uh, we do do the smaller pieces, five by seven, eight by tens, but primarily we have the larger, everything is 30 inches. We also make and source smaller vintage frames that can be as small as three inch by two inch. Have you ever thought about doing small photography in um, like brooches or pins? We have, but I see a lot of other vendors that do those type of things. And I figured if we just stick to what we do, which is just the photography, that's what we'll be known for. Right. So what got you into this to, to start with? To, um, was it just a curiosity wanting to explore cemeteries or did you start with photography? How did this come about? So I started taking photos. Uh, my father, uh, he got me a camera an Olympus 35 millimeter in 1991. So I started just doing photography all over the place, whether it was cars, you know, nature, whatever it was. So I always had kind of an eye for photography. Uh, fast forward to about 2004 or five, we went to Savannah, Georgia. I took a lot of photos there after posting them to my Facebook page. Everybody was very excited about the images and were asking if I could sell them or if I was interested in selling them. But I hadn't thought about it at that point, so I just kind of started there. And we started doing uh, horror movie conventions, which we were just visiting them. And then we decided that since the conventions were costing us a fortune, maybe we would just run a booth and try to sell our photography, and it would just be like a wash. So that's kind of what it started out as. And then as we started doing it more and more, we got a pretty good following and we'd go to shows that we weren't vending and people would ask us, how come we're not vending? So we just kind of started giving people what they wanted. People would request bigger pieces or they would request a certain type of uh, location. And we just kind of started catering to that. And that's really where it's been going so far. Okay. Now, is this, uh, is this, has this become your main job or is it just sort of your dark side hustle? Yeah, it's the dark side hustle. You know, I've got a full-time job that takes up a whole lot of my time and I don't really have the means to be able to support the entire staff, <laughs> which is me and, right. my, me and my wife and my daughter at this point. My daughter, she usually runs all the, uh, sales at the shows and my wife she snacks while she's in the car when we're at the cemeteries <laughs> <laughs> so yes it's just a really cool hobby that allows us to be able to interact with all the uh darker side of you know people in michigan and people everywhere because when you go to these things out of town or locally you get to meet all those type of people and we're all kind of alike so we're uh we have a big show coming up in uh Fowlerville, Michigan, at the Hearst Fest show. That's this Saturday. And then after that, we're going to be in Salem, Massachusetts for Haunted Happenings on October, wow. on October 14th. You really do go around the country. We do, absolutely. We try to get out as much as we can as far as uh, you know, <clears throat> for either photography or for a, a show. You know, Is there a particular photograph you took that you're most proud of? Um. Right now, the best one, I think, is going to be the um, Hesserot Angel or the Hesserot family plot from Cleveland, Ohio. Hesserot was a canning mogul in Cleveland, Ohio, and they have a large family plot that has the, it's called the Kiss of Death or the Angel of Death, the Angel of Death Eternal, and it's a large bronze statue, and the eyes look like they're crying because of the patina on the eyes. And that one, everybody requests, whether it's big, large, or small. Now, where are you physically located? Um, we're in if Waterford, someone, I'm sorry, go ahead. We're in Waterford, Michigan. We're about 40 minutes north of Detroit. Okay. And if uh, people want to see your work online, uh, where do they go? Uh, you can check me out on my Facebook page, which is Still Life Photography by Mike Haynes. And I'm also on Instagram. And my Instagram is... 
I am the ghastly one at Instagram. I absolutely love that. I wish I could steal that from you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what? I'm sorry, go ahead. I've probably been the ghastly one for about 25 years. <laughs> I think back in the old web TV days, I was ghastly one back then too. Is there anything else you would uh, like the listeners to know about you? So a fun fact, uh, August 28th, 2020, I suffered a heart attack. During that heart attack, I had no problems. I didn't have any chest pain, any shortness of breath. I didn't even know I was really having one, but my wife called EMS and wanted them to come check me out. So the EMS showed up. They took me to the hospital where they found two blockages. The two blockages were greater than 70%, so they put stents in. Seven hours after my stent surgery, I coded for 97 minutes. So no vitals, brain dead. They did manual CPR for 44 minutes. They did a Lucas machine CPR for 47, 46 minutes. Then they did 13 strikes with the paddles, which is the minimum, but they usually start out is it's like 200 joules to reset your heart. The maximum is 900. They shocked me 13 times, lucky number, with 800 joules, and I never resuscitated. It burnt my nipple off and blew my vocal cords out. So when I came to through from the coma that they put me in that I was supposed to be in for 72 hours, I was only in it for about maybe five hours. I wrote down on a dry erase board, did I leave? Was I in Ohio? I have things to tell you. Now, what happened to me while I was either in the coma or during my state of flatline, I was being chased by an unseen entity swinging a bat and dragging a chain, but I couldn't see it behind me. And it was chasing down an industrial alley in Cleveland, Ohio. When I came to, in my mind, I was squeezing through a gate fence that was padlocked in this alley. And I came to in the hospital bed. Whatever was chasing me down the alley was in the hospital bed with me, and it was stabbing this pole up through the bottom of the bed. So I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I didn't see pearly gates. I didn't see friends and family. I saw what would probably be the equivalent of the Grim Reaper chasing me down an industrial alley in Cleveland, Ohio. Wow, that is quite an experience. Yeah. Well, I hope we can have you... Um, we're at uh, World Goth Day, one of these uh, one of these years coming up. That would be great. Okay, well, Mike Haynes of Still Life Photography, yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to a new segment I call Rokus's Ruminations. This is basically my soapbox where I editorialize a little bit, share some thoughts and mad ramblings, and will do my best not to bore you, so I hope you'll stay with me. Lately, as I work on the plans for the World Goth Day Film Festival coming up in May of 2024, I found myself reminiscing on past Goth Day events. Prior to the film festival and before COVID basically ended the world, Mid-Michigan World Goth Day was focused on a, on a cemetery picnic and club event. As many of you no doubt know, cemetery picnics are a long-standing goth tradition. They used to be far more common amongst the population as a whole, though this has unfortunately largely been forgotten. Even people who consider themselves friends of cemeteries and experts on the subject don't always realize this. Attendees of those first few years of the Goth Day picnic will remember how we got together at the Mount Hope Cemetery in Lansing, enjoyed a potluck, potluck lunch, wandered the grounds, and basically just enjoyed the beauty of the area and of the day. But not everyone who attended was there with good intentions. I suppose every party has a pooper, and we certainly had ours. Actually, she was more of a stalker. This was an elderly woman who was part of an organization called the Friends of Lansing's Historic Cemeteries. Now, before I go on, the Friends of Lansing Historic Cemeteries is a perfectly legitimate group. They're concerned with the preservation and the history of burial places, and I applaud that. 
But this particular woman, whose name I will not use here, and who I honestly don't think was representing this group very well, or the wishes of that group, well, she was something else again. If memory serves, she showed up at the third annual picnic. It seems she found our Facebook announcements and decided to go on a personal crusade. I don't really know why she decided to, to, to uh, take up the cause of denying Goths their right to congregate in a public cemetery, but she clearly found the idea offensive. She would park her car some distance from our gathering and would watch us for hours. Eventually, she got up the gumption to walk right up to us. When I first saw her, I greeted her, greeted her and asked her if she would like to join us for lunch. She responded by telling me that we had no right to be there and that she had called the police. I told her and tried to reassure her that I had cleared our event with the director of the cemetery across the street uh, several weeks ago and that the director was fine with it. Actually, I had a great conversation with the director who was well aware of the history of using cemeteries as parks, and she was glad someone was getting some use out of it. But this old lady was having none of it, and it started a pattern of uh, harassing behavior that would last for the next several years. Now, I know I'm not alone in having encountered public misunderstanding of what goth is and why we enjoy hanging out in cemeteries. Few people today understand how they came to be the park-like places of tranquility that they are now. So for the next time that you find yourself needing to educate someone who thinks you're just there to sacrifice babies or to conjure up the end of the world, let me arm you with a little historical knowledge. In centuries past, during the times of the Roman domination of Europe, burial of the dead was always done outside the city, of, uh, city walls. For reasons of sanitation, burying the dead within the city was expressly forbidden by law. The first major exception came in the year 337 CE with the death of Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor of Rome. Constantine was buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople. The church granted this privilege in gratitude for his establishment of Christianity as the official religion of the empire. And the fact that uh, Constantine had built the church uh, didn't exactly hurt either. Burial within the city or town limits uh, was still not common until 752 CE, when St. Cuthbert was given permission by the Pope to have ch churchyards declared to be suitable places for the internment of the dead. Now, the Emperor Constantine's burial within the church building set a precedent that would prove to be unfortunate for public health. It's unclear that he intended to set that precedent, but the precedent was set. Once an emperor wants to do something, it becomes fashionable. The church building itself became coveted as, a, even if not a most sanitary resting place, a very prestigious one. The clergy, princes, and wealthy saw the church burial as a sort of status symbol, and once the privilege had been bestowed, it became thought of as a hereditary right by families with a history of financial support of the church. Competition was intense for the best parts of the church to be buried in. The closer to the altar, the higher was the status. The church uh, did what it could to curb uh, church building internments, but the traditions are hard to break. And as generations lived and died, churches became packed with rotting corpses. Not surprisingly, parishioners complained of the smell. In response, the Catholic Church forbade internments within the church buildings for anyone who was not either a bishop or a layman of first distinction. By first distinction, that usually meant wealthy. If you were not wealthy enough to be buried beneath the floor of your local church, then the next best thing was in the land surrounding it. But even in the churchyard, there was a clear pecking order. The most coveted location in God's Acre, as it became to known, was the east side of the building, uh, preferably as near to the altar wall as could be managed. The reason for this involves early Christian burial customs, which had graves oriented in such a way that the head of the grave would point in a westerly direction and the feet to the east. This was to allow the dead to enjoy the sunrise on the day of judgment when they would all rise from their graves. Clearly, then, the east side of the church was considered prime real estate for burial as it offered the best view of the rising sun. The south side of the church was less coveted, but was still respectable. However, the northern quarter was considered to be the devil's domain. The reason for this is because when the, the priest would face the altar, to his left, the left being the satanic direction, would face north. 
Few burials took place in the northern quarter. Those who were interned on the north side uh, were typically murderers, lunatics, suicides, stillborns, vagrants, the unbaptized, and the excommunicated, basically undesirables. Burial on the north side, therefore, was to be avoided at all costs. It was not unheard of for those uh, whose loved ones were denied burial in honored places to deceive the church officials or secretly dig them up and then bury them again at night within the coveted spot. Clergymen did not turn a blind eye to this if such deceptions were found out, and on at least one occasion, the parents of a stillborn child that had been buried on consecrated ground were ordered by the church to dig up their own child and move it themselves a year after its death. The extremes to which both parishioners and church officials would go demonstrates just how deeply ingrained the psychological need was for people of the time to be buried either in or near the church. Denial of burial on consecrated ground endangered the soul of the departed and was very disturbing to the grieving. Nowhere but the church or the church ground would do. But burial in such a confined area could not go on forever. Eventually, the need for a burial space managed to chase the devil out of the northern quarter of the churchyard, and it was opened up for a general burial of parishioners. But that was only a temporary fix. Eventually, something was going to give. The 18th century is when it finally gave. The mid-1750s saw the start of a hundred-year period in Europe and America known as the Industrial Revolution. With it came a population explosion in, in cities and towns. An increase in the number of living residents in an area always means a soon-to-follow increase in the number of dead residents as well. Diseases that always run more rampantly in densely populated areas also added to the income of undertakers. This is when churchyard overuse became a serious problem. The initial response of churchyard sextons to their increasing business was to simply pack graves in closer together. When that turned out not to be enough, they began to stack multiple coffins in the graves of the poor. A deep grave with 20-plus coffins, often with unidentified bodies, was not at all unusual. In her 1847 novel, Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte commented on the horrendous condition of churchyards at the time. When her heroine, Jane, believes that she's about to die, she says, Far better that the crows and ravens should peck my flesh from my bones than that they should be prisoned in a workhouse coffin and molder in a pauper's grave. When one considers that being buried in a pauper's grave essentially meant being disposed of like a piece of garbage in a mass landfill, then Jane Eyre's fear and disgust at the thought can be easily understood. Mass graves became so many and so deep that the ground levels of some churchyards rose as much as 20 feet above the church floor, but it didn't stop there. Soon churches were limiting the time that graves could be occupied by a corpse. It wasn't a bad idea to start with. It was a sort of a, a graveyard equivalent to crop rotation. Corpses and coffins would be allowed to decompose and a gravesite then reused after a few years. But demand for space became such that turnover could happen after only a few days or even hours after a burial. Exhumed corpses would be dismembered by grave diggers and left to scatter over the graveyard. In 1838, an English reporter witnessed the action of a grave digger in St. Giles Burial Ground, now called the Ascension Parish Burial Ground, in Cambridge, England. He described how the coffin of a newly buried child had been unearthed by the man who was digging a new grave. The digger simply chopped the small coffin and the child up with his spade and then proceeded to dig. The careless exposure of putrefying human remains certainly can be considered horrifyingly disrespectful to the dead, but it was also a serious menace to public health. Putrid fumes and disease-causing seepage often leaked through the soil to contaminate the water table of the area. Stacked corpses would spill over the sides of the walls into the streets, and the stench could be smelled for miles. Something clearly needed to be done. But the truth is, by the time that newspapers in Britain were starting to bring attention to the conditions of churchyards there, something had already been done in Paris. In 1786, the city began to take st uh, serious steps to deal with its most notorious graveyard, the Cemetery of the Innocents. This graveyard was worse in many ways than its English counterparts. Its mass graves might contain more than a thousand corpses. 
When it was finally shut down, the bodies were disinterred and moved to the underground tunnels that had been left over from ancient Roman mining efforts. The cemetery had covered an area of only 130 by 65 meters, but when it was finally emptied, the bones of 7 million people had been moved. The transportation of these remains was a massive undertaking and must have been quite a sight to see. A long procession of funeral carts carrying the freshly clean bones of the dead, accompanied by the chanting of priests, was viewed by thousands who lined the streets to light the way with the torches. The tunnels that now contain the remains from the Cemetery of the Innocents are the now famous Catacombs of Paris. Shutting down the Cemetery of Innocents was not all that was accomplished. All the, the uh, churchyards of the capital were required by law to be closed to further burial for a period of five years. Additionally, eight new cemeteries were established in locations that were, at the time, outside the city limits. Acceptance of the new regulations came slowly, but even the, no the nobility, who still viewed the churchyard burial as a birthright, eventually came around. Old practices that had led to the unsanitary conditions in the cemeteries were abolished. The Paris legal actions were some of the earliest truly successful reforms in burial ground design and management. After France had set the example, other countries followed. In the U.S., New York City was one of the first cities to act on reforms similar to those of Paris. England took longer, but eventually came around. The advent of modern cemeteries was an enormous sigh of relief throughout Europe and America. In pre-industrial age times, churchyard burial grounds were the center of social activity for the town, particularly on festival days. They were the playground for children and the site of miracle plays on religious holidays. All of that ended when they became unsanitary and unfit for either the living or the dead. But the new reforms restored and greatly enhanced their formal, former role as a social center. By the Victorian era, the cemeteries of Europe were grand spectacles. They were not only sanitary, but were beautiful, lavishly gardened and decorated parks. Families and young couples would spend the day strolling through them, admiring the beauty. And this is what the unfortunate, ill-informed visitor to our goth day celebrations just didn't seem to understand. Or maybe she did know that. After all, her group sp spends uh, plenty of time in cemeteries, and they even conduct tours. Perhaps she just didn't want the same a privilege to be extended to black-wearing freaks. I can't actually say I know. But when I did try to explain the history of cemeteries to her and how they were once used as parks, all she would say is, not according to my information. Well, when the police arrived, I learned that my verbal agreement with the cemetery director was not enough. He said that in future, I would need permission from the Department of Parks. In following years, we did our best to comply with state regulations, but that did not stop our overzealous old lady. She followed, followed us from year to year, doing everything she could to be disruptive. Even when we went to a private cemetery, she wouldn't leave us alone. Well, COVID eventually put a temporary stop to our graveyard excursions, and now World Goth Day Mid-Michigan is reborn as a film festival event. It's been years since I've seen our enthusiastic, if hostile, guest. But a while ago, I was on Facebook, and I saw a post that she had put on the Friends of Cemetery group. And it was an article about how cemeteries were once used as parks, and how the tradition should be brought back. I couldn't help myself. I responded to the post, uh, reminding her that this is exactly what I had told her years before. That got me quickly banned from the group. I guess it's hard for some people to admit they're wrong. Coming up next is my special guest, Toronto-based singer and musician Anastasia Minster. So stay tuned. Hello, Darklings, and welcome. With me today is Anastasia Minster. She is a Moscow-born, Toronto-based singer and musician. Her music has been described as dark and ethereal and is influenced by classical folk and jazz. Uh, her lyrics are influenced by the writings of Carl Jung, uh, Hermann Hesse, and Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, Anastasia, welcome. Hello. Yes, it's uh, really nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Again. Now, now, is everything that I just said accurate? Yes, that uh, sounds about right. Okay. So now you are for, uh, from Moscow. You were born and raised there, correct? Yes, yes, I was. 
Okay, so you grew up in the music scene and the music culture of uh, Moscow. Um, uh, uh, how did that shape you? What is Moscow musically? How would you describe it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I would I would start probably the way it shaped me. I think one of the m most important things is that I was exposed to Russian classical music from a very early age. And I think that definitely uh, gave me a lot of inspiration. Um, I also had a, a, a quite, quite a big collection of uh, records and a lot of them were also by uh, Russian classical composers and I love that. And then, yeah, well, um, I went through different stages uh, back there, back in Moscow. So, um, the music scene is uh, uh, is amazing there. It's very, very, like there is a lot of variety. So you can find pretty much anything. And uh, people also love going out. They love going to shows and they're very interested in culture. So it was actually, it was a great experience being a musician in, in Moscow once I started playing. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I had an audience there, and um, I think I, I just felt very supported, and uh, I felt like my music was understood there quite well. Now, you were in several bands while you were in your teens, is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, so what kind of bands were those? What, what, what genre of music? Oh, yeah. So, well, you know, it's always been pretty dark for me, so... Uh, the first band um, that I was in, it was experimental music. It was kind of um, heavier music, much heavier than I play right now. And uh, we basically, we improvised a lot. And uh, we just played heavy music, but a lot of improvisation too. So uh, I remember I was doing uh, all sorts of things with my vocals, like uh, growling and screaming and, and um, singing and whispering and all sorts of things. And it was very atmospheric back then. And um, yeah, and very dark and scary at times. So that was the first band. Would you say, when you say dark and scary, would you say that it would... Uh, how would that compare to genres of Western music? Would you say it compares to uh, what you did early on in your teens? Would, would, mm -hmm. it, would it be compared to Gothic rock, um, metal? How would you describe it? How would you describe how it would compare to what our listeners are probably more familiar with? Yeah, well, you see, this is hard because I think, uh, well, I think that uh, it was um, a mixture of genres. So it was a little bit of metal. It was a little bit of uh, like maybe noise at times. Um, yeah, it was all sorts of things. I think we were just, we're all very young back then. And we were experimenting a lot with that. And we didn't really want to confine ourselves with any, you know, like with any specific genre. So, Right, that's understandable. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, how old were you when you left Russia? I was about, um, so I was in my 20s. That was uh, almost 10 years ago, I think, now. So, um, yeah, I left Russia in my 20s. So I arrived here 10 years ago. Now, when you decided to leave Russia, what made you come to Toronto? Oh, it was a beautiful, beautiful story. I don't know if, it, if I want to share all of that, but uh, it was for personal reasons. And... Um, but actually, even before that, I, I really wanted to explore North America. So at some point, I felt that I would really want to be somewhere in North America and experience life here. And it just happened that it was a beautiful coincidence for me that, um, you know, basically, I, I, I had a, a reason to come here and relocate. And, uh, and that's what I did. And how do, how would you say you uh, feel you've um, merged with the musical culture in, in Toronto? Mm. Has, has it been? A, have you felt like it's been a good fit for you? I think so. Well, definitely. You know, the longer I live here, uh, the the better I feel. At first, of course, the first couple of years it was a little bit 
um, difficult because, you know, that was a time of a big transition. I'm not sure I felt at home right away. Uh, but yes, now I feel, I feel very, like it feels, I feel really, really good about being here. And somehow now that I live in, in Canada, I also feel much, much closer to not only North American music scene, but even strangely European music scene as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's an interesting change that I found. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I made a lot of connections here. And the local music scene at first it was in the jazz community mostly but then um yeah that i i just i kept making more and more connections and i found some really amazing local musicians now you were part of a duo called uh watercolor jazz is that right yes yeah that's that's right and are you still involved uh, as a, a musical duo no, we um, we stopped uh, we stopped with our live performances a couple of years ago. So yeah, we, we don't really do that. Although it was a really uh, a really special project, uh, and it felt great when we were doing that. But we don't do that anymore. Now that was a mu uh, a mixture of music and uh, physical art, like painting. Mm -hmm. When I've been able to read, can you describe yeah. more about what exactly that was? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, um, well, the duo—it um, was myself and my good friend uh, Ksenia. Uh, she's Ukrainian. Um, she's an artist. She's an amazing artist, and uh, she paints in the genre of um, magical realism. That's the way she <laughs> she defines it. And what we were doing is that basically we wanted to merge live painting and live music so i would just play my songs and um for for about an hour or sometimes a little bit longer and she would at the same time try to express what i was doing musically through visuals right so through her paintings she was live painting and uh, um during one show she would be able to paint a finished picture and uh, and that picture was inspired by by the music that I was playing. Now you were mentioned the the darkness of your music and its themes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. you, you've been inspired among amongst other writers. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jung. Yes, and, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Jung is is someone who's always been particularly fascinating to me. You know, oh. The concept of a personal shadow and mm -hmm. owning one's shadow. How does that draw into your music? Yes, well, first of all, it's lovely to hear that you also uh, find Carl Jung interesting. Yeah, he's a very special, uh, very special person, of course. And um, um, I actually, my first LP was, uh, it was called Hour of the Wolf. And the main theme was exploring the, the shadow self. And um, yeah, I was just, I, I was just trying to... Um, just trying to kind of look at his ideas and uh, my, a lot of my lyrics were influenced by that um, because I, I love that concept of going into the dark places of the psyche and, and bringing it into the light and becoming a more uh, healthy uh, and a more balanced individual by doing that. Yeah, I think that is... I think it's a mistake that many people make is to feel like to be afraid of their darker side mm -hmm. and at that as being something needing to be repressed or run away from. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you feel that? And although, you know, like you, um, uh, Jung has talked about and, and others, as far as the dark side of human nature, it can have a lot of destructive tendencies, mm -hmm. but do you also feel that it can be a source of strength and has it been that for you? I think so. Yes, I think it definitely can be the source of strength because um, the better you know yourself, um, the better you can, yeah, just the, the, the more, the better you can function, I guess, right? And um, yeah, I just think that, uh, you know, darkness and the dark side of personality, it's also a part of life. And um, this shadow self can even be like knowing it and being in touch with it can be really, really, truly empowering. I found it 
um, yeah, I just, I found it at some point in my life that it's actually much, much better to know yourself and uh, know the darkness within you as well. Now, your first, you mentioned your first uh, album, Hour of the Wolf. Mm -hmm. Yes. And more recently, you have, you now have two albums, is that correct? Yes, and uh, I'm working on the third one right now. Okay. Now, The Hour of the Wolf came out in 2017, and your more recent album, Father, uh, came out last year, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Um, no, it actually, so it was released uh, initially in 2020, and then I released it on vinyl. Oh, okay. um, Yeah, in 2022, I believe, 2022. Yeah, actually last year, yeah. What would you say changed the most between those albums? I, I will say to start off with, I, I have heard uh, Father because um, that's uh, I have found that on Spotify and on Apple Music, but I have not found your first one. I, I do want to find it, and I'm hoping I do. But uh, how would you describe, how much did you change musically, lyrically, um, from the one album to the other? What is most different about them? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first of all, it's available. I don't think uh, "Hour of the Wolf" is available on Spotify now. On Spotify now, but it should be available for streaming on my Bandcamp. Uh, so it's there. You can stream it there. Um, I think the, so. There, there has been a lot of changes, uh, both musically and uh, lyrically as well. "Hour of the Wolf" um, had more. Uh, in terms of the arrangements, it had uh, electric guitar, for example, and it was a little bit more like um, it felt more like a band kind of thing. So back then, I was working closely with those musicians, and I think their contribution is also very, very visible there. They were amazing, and um, it was just more um, like I, I, the way I see it, it's a little bit more rock. Um, and, um, in terms of the lyrics, yeah, that hour of the wolf explore, explores the shadow self. It's very psychological. Uh, father is a little bit more like there are more classical influences. For example, there's a lot of, uh, strings. There's the cello, which I absolutely love. And I also collaborated with, um, an English, um, musician and uh, composer and sound producer Steve Jansen on that one too so we made three tracks together where it's basically a lot of that is just the voice a little bit of the piano and his beautiful um, kind of synths and strings that he created um, and also father I feel like it's more maybe I let myself be a little bit more, even more vulnerable. So it's very, a lot of, uh, a lot of that record, uh, the lyrics are based on my personal experiences. And it's... That it's, feeds right into my next question. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to ask you a little bit about the lyrics of the title track. Mm -hmm. of Father. I'm not going to read the entire song. I won't take that away from the listeners, but mm -hmm. um, I'll, I just want to read two verses briefly and ask you about them. Sure. Uh, father, the, the flowers bloomed. Those were really flowers of evil. And we'd meet by the cemetery gate, not the gates of Eden. Father, the fruit was sweet. It was cursed and rotten to the core. And we fell softly into the arms of sleep just to wake up naked and sore. That, mm -hmm. that, is, that sounds very raw and very personal. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I don't want to get, you know, too prying in, you know, on this question, but uh, can you share anything that, uh, that inspired those lyrics? Oh, yes, that's a, that's a, that's a lovely question, but it, um, I'm trying to think. Well, the song is about um, father can, can be interpreted in different ways, right? So it can be interpreted as talking to God, father, or as talking to a father figure, or um, yeah, I guess that, that these are the two main interpretations. And the song is about uh, a tragic love story, um, love that, that looks beautiful and promising and exciting on the surface, but it turns out to be absolutely different. It turns out to be dramatic and unhealthy and destructive. And uh, I guess the whole song is 
written from the point of a person who's going through that experience and trying to find some support. Um, yeah, and there is also uh, an allusion to Charles Baudelaire, one of my favorite French poets. He has this uh, collection of poems that are called uh, Flowers of Evil. Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when I, I went onto your website and uh, I, <clears throat> I saw some pictures of you on there, garbed mostly in black, walking amongst uh, the headstones in a graveyard, and um, also in reference to it, some of the um, uh, words mentioning where you lived and where you worked, it said, uh, you're living in a building overlooking a colossal park. Um, Anastasia's piano sits beside a window so that she can watch the sunset. It's where she observes hawks as they soar, listens to coyotes howl, and wakes up uh, to the dawn chorus at 5 a.m. when there are no other sounds to hide their singing. Anastasia's music uh, is to uh, break the silence of the dark and to accompany those witching hour questions of life and death, estrangement and connection. I don't know if you have ever um, personally identified as a goth, but I really think you could pass for one. Um, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure I can. Uh, absolutely. Yes, I have identified as a goth when I was uh, in my teens, in my, I hope when I was a teenager. Um, so yes, I was very, very goth, uh, goth looking person. Well, I, think you, I think you still are. I think in your heart, you still are. At I heart, don't know you, you've never met, but... <laughs> I think you are. I guess so. I get, well, I do. I, I do like to walk in the cemetery as well. So now I live close to Mount Pleasant Cemetery and I, I love to take long walks there, you know, in all seasons. So I guess, I guess there's something, there's something still there. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Uh, Toronto is very uh, fortunate to have you. I happen to be on the Thank other you. side of the border. I'm in uh, Michigan. Right. Do you you might uh, tour in the United States or... Or oh. do you have any other tours uh, coming up that you're planning? I would absolutely love to, of course. But um, and and I hope that that I can do that a little bit later because now I'm really working on that new album. But once we finish next year, I will be looking at uh, the touring uh, opportunities. And if if I can make it work, definitely I would love to come to the U.S. What can you tell us about that new album you're working on? Sure. Um, so it's called uh, Song of Songs, uh, and it's inspired. So the name of the the name of this album was inspired by an ancient Hebrew poem uh, that was supposedly written by King Solomon. Uh, it's called Song of Songs. It's an erotic poem about love, and uh, you know yes. there are different there are different interpretations too. So so for example, uh, a, a lot of um, 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 a lot of uh, scientists think that b basically it is deeper, so it's about God and, uh, and human, it's not necessarily about uh, romantic love. But this whole album is uh, kind of an exploration of love for me. And um, also, uh, as usual, of course, it's not, it's not just a beautiful uh, romantic love, but I, I have songs that will explore uh, toxic relationships and uh, destructive uh, aspects of love and so on and so forth. And um, for this album, I, I, I'm going to involve a symphony orchestra, a small, kind of a smaller one. But uh, yes, finally, I will have a chance to work with an orchestra on this one. So it's still going to be dark, uh, dark and... Uh, Please keep Please keep it dark. I sure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, I have to. I mean, it's not all dark, but there, there will be enough darkness there. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so this album, we're, we're just currently working on that. I'm going to the studio in September and then later in November. And hopefully next year, uh, we will have this one ready. Well, that's great. I'm very much looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Well, Ed, thank you for joining us, and um, I do hope we can see you over here on uh, this side of the border, but as I said, Toronto is fortunate to have you. Yeah, oh, thank you so much. Thank you again for the invitation, and it, it's been such a 
such a lovely conversation great questions and um, thank you so much you have been listening to the michigan mausoleum my thanks to mike haynes of still life photography and to my special guest anastasia minster The Michigan Mausoleum is a World Goth Day Mid-Michigan production. Our intro was done by Miranda Guthrie. And now I will leave you with a song by today's guest. It's the title track to her newest album, Father.
The Michigan Mausoleum is presented by World Goth Day Mid-Michigan and the team that brought you Convergence 24.